or two, and to please stand as you were doing so, that we might honor God and His Word. <clears throat> we're going to be looking at the tail end of 1 Timothy chapter 2 this morning, particularly verses 11 through 15. And so, as we continue working our way through books of the Bible, this is where we find ourselves. And I say that because where we find ourselves this morning is a notoriously contentious passage of Scripture. Uh, so I pray that by God's grace, this passage would serve us well this morning. Let me begin reading in verse 11. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. Mark Twain famously said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. And in a lot of ways, I think as Christians, we can relate, right? I can't be the only one who has been frustrated when reading God's Word. I, I can't be the only one who's been reading a portion of God's Word and stopped mid-sentence and just, be, just become angry and thought, this can't be right. This, this can't mean what it says it means. In my more unsanctified moments, I might think to myself, you know what? If God is really like this, then I don't know if I want anything to do with Him at all. Truth be told, this is one of the dangerous things with reading the Bible. Because we as creatures are prone to make God in our image. We sort of have this idea, this conception of who or what we think God should be like. And that works if you sort of cherry pick your favorite Bible verses and stuff like that. But if you actually read through God's word, you are going to discover that you don't make God in your image. God made you in his. And he's not accountable to you. You're accountable to him. And it's not so much what you think that matters. It's what God says that matters. And so, we find all sorts of teaching and truth, doctrine and duty, that makes even the most sanctified Christians break out in hymns. Think about it. From the Christian sexual ethic to church membership. From child rearing to giving. From our utter deadness in our sin to the pride-destroying nature of grace. From the beauty of the gospel itself to tough marriages. From the exclusivity of Christ to the gruesome reality of hell. In all of this, God's word routinely rubs up against us. And as God's word rubs up against us, God calls us in his word to bow the knee, to yield. To hear and to believe and to obey and to love God and to love what He has revealed to us 
in his word. But again, we, we have a gospel that forgives sins so we can confess our sins. This is still tough sometimes. It, it's very easy to wrestle with Scripture and to not like what God says. And to be completely candid, the passage that is in front of us this morning, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, it is a notoriously thorny section of Scripture, one that causes all sorts of people to squirm. I mean, think about it, for real. God's word here clearly differentiates between men and women, something if, that if you're keeping up with, our culture is now unable to do. On top of that, God's word here, it gives commands and it makes demands. It tells us who we are. It tells us what we are to do. Beloved, it tells us how we are to live our lives. And for many, this is quite unsettling. If all of that wasn't bad enough, there's also a whole slew of naughty words in here, isn't there? Verse 11, submissiveness. Verse 12, I didn't say it, God did. The woman is to remain quiet. And then in verse 14, we are told that Eve was deceived and made a transgressor. And then finally, you get into verse 15, and there's something about giving birth and how that saves women. So to many modern ears, this whole passage reeks of sexism. It causes offense. It, it triggers people. It causes microaggressions. Those that cause feminists to burn their bras and those that cause egalitarians to treat God's word as if it were origami. We hear shouted from the rooftops, surely it can't mean that. We hear echoed on Twitter and throughout social media, well, that was for them, not for us. We've evolved. Now, lest you think I'm just picking on certain tribes, and I am, like feminists and egalitarians, you should also know that this also hits a little closer to home. Just recently, and by that I mean like two months ago, the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, ostensibly the single largest conservative Christian denomination slash association in the United States, it was unable to define a pastor. More to the point, they needed to form a study group to determine if the office of pastor was reserved for men or if it was open to women. And the catalyst for all of this was Rick Warren's Saddleback Church, a church you should know that is in good standing in the SBC. And the problem is that Saddleback Church has officially ordained women to the pastorate. So all of that to say this. We need, and I would invite you, to come with fresh ears and open eyes and soft hearts to once again bow before God's Word. You see, it's not enough to simply hear the Word, beloved. We have to heed it. Even the parts that grate against our modern sensibilities, and I assure you, this will grate against your modern sensibilities. Now, with that being said, it's important not to divorce this passage from its context. 
Remember, Paul, the inspired apostle, he is giving instruction to Timothy concerning the local church. That's the context. In this section, he's laying out, 1 Timothy 3.15, how one ought to behave in the household of God. So the context here, please understand, is about the public gathering of the church for corporate worship. And if you recall from several weeks ago, when we gave our attention to the beginning of chapter 2, we saw the priority of public worship. Last week, we focused on the posture of public worship. Now this morning, the principles What guiding principles does God's Word lay out for us here concerning this, our worship gathering? What what is Scripture telling us about the church and her leadership and her worship? Well, brothers and sisters, those are the questions that we are going to answer as we seek to submit to God's Word this morning. And we're going to do this by noting from our passage the precept the prohibition, the purpose, and the promise. So I know some of you are note takers. That's how we're going to tackle this section. The precept, the prohibition, the purpose, and the promise. Now, let's get into the text. I know that's a long introduction, but given given this passage of Scripture, I want to try to lay out my cards. Let's get into the text. For all the ambiguities and for all the debate surrounding this passage of Scripture, there is one thing that everyone can agree on, believe it or not, and that is the precept. What is our passage commanding? Well, you should know there's actually only one imperative in this entire section. You know what it is? It's in verse 11. Let a woman learn. That's a command. This is not a suggestion. This is what God's word requires. This is the precept. Women, you are to learn. To which you might be tempted to shrug your shoulders and think, okay, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. It was inconceivable in the ancient world for women to learn. Cook, clean, have babies, please men. Yeah, sure, that all made sense in the ancient world. But for women to learn? Beloved, we have to see how revolutionary this is. For Paul to go out of his way and to instruct the churches that their women should learn and understand and grapple with the truth of Scripture. This was altogether unheard of. To give you just a taste of how revolutionary this is, here is an opinion, not mine, that was expressed in the Jerusalem Talmud. It would be better for the words of Torah to be burned than that they should be entrusted to a woman. This was the ancient mindset. And then Paul comes along and says, women, you should be learners. Or to up the ante and use the words of the Lord himself, Women, you should be disciples, which means that ladies, you should strive to be students of the word. Sometimes, and and, and this can happen in sort of smaller, more conservative churches, sometimes it is mistaken that a woman thinks her life's calling consists of merely doing dishes and folding the laundry, and that somehow all of the spiritual stuff that's for the men or something. My friends, that is not 
what God's Word says. Speaking directly to you ladies, God calls you to learn and to grow and to obey and to love the Bible and doctrine and theology. There is nothing in our passage this morning that would lead you to think, well, I'm a woman, so, so I should never read the Bible. I should never exercise discernment. Or, or maybe I should just sort of check my brain at the door. My only job is to change diapers. No. Ladies, I want you to understand that God commands you this morning to learn. To learn. And your learning, ladies, should lead you to your Lord. In other words, you are to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ so that you can trust Christ more. Right? This is not merely, ladies or men, an academic enterprise. If that's why you showed up to get some tidbits or some factoids, go home. We are not here for that. We are here to worship God. And we worship God as we seek to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. As we mentioned in Sunday school, we do not come to learn the same way that we approach a frog in our chemistry or our biology class, as if we stand over him and dissect him and point out these parts and point out this and then walk away unchanged. Ladies, in particular, you are to learn so you can better love. You are to learn about Christ so that you can more fully lean on Christ. You are to know about him and what he has done and all that he is in the gospel for you so that you can find your identity in him, so that you can rest in him, so that you can receive all the fresh grace that he pours out to you. Ladies, we do not learn, rather, you do not learn of Christ the way that you learn of math. You learn of Christ so that, the fires, so that the fire of your heart would be stoked so that you might more clearly see and savor how glorious and sufficient and perfect and wonderful Christ is for you. Now, with that being said, ladies, you are called to learn in a certain way. Verse 11 qualifies, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. So, so how should this discipleship work itself out? Well, quietly and with submissiveness. Let's be very clear here. Quietly there in verse 11 doesn't mean that a woman must be a mute or a mime. Neither does it have the flavor of just shut up. And we know this is the case because over in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul explicitly explains women are to pray and to prophesy in the gathered assembly. So we can know this. Verse 11 does not simply mean woman zip it. That's not what it's talking about. Then what does it mean? Well, go back up to verse 2. Remember what Paul says? 
The church is to pray, 1 Timothy 2.2, for kings and all who are in positions of high authority, uh, uh, for kings and all who are in high positions, thank you, that we would lead a peaceful and, here it is, quiet life. And you should know the word there up in verse 2, it's the same word here in verse 11. And it certainly does not mean, does it, brothers and sisters, that we are praying for our governors and our presidents so that we can never speak again. That's not the point. You see, just like in verse 2, so it is in here, verse 11, quiet carries with it the idea of being free from turmoil or contention. So Christian woman, the idea of quietly here, it's first and foremost talking about a demeanor. The godly woman has a quiet demeanor and spirit that is peaceable instead of argumentative. She resists any and all attitudes that even smell like hectoring or harassment. And instead, she is striving to live a life free from contention, confusion, and controversy. This idea is further buttressed there in verse 11 with that phrase, with all submissiveness. That dirty word, it was a military word which described the ranks of soldiers arranging themselves under the leadership of their commander. And here in the context, it seems pretty clear that it means that the godly woman is to reject any notion of stepping outside of her lane or undermining or usurping the authority of the elders. Rather, the godly woman is one who will rejoice and receive the instruction of the church. So that's the first thing to see. And believe it or not, that's the, most, that's the least contentious part, the precept. Let's shift gears to the prohibition. Because verse 12 states, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So again, if you thought verse 11 was contentious, verse 12 is like an uppercut. What is Paul saying here? What's he forbidding? Two things. A woman is not to teach And second, she is not to exercise authority over a man. Those are the two prohibitions. Now, when it comes to the prohibition regarding a woman teaching, two clarifying comments are in order. For starters, we should recognize that women are, in fact, called to teach God's Word. Let me say that again. Women are called to teach God's Word. Ironically enough, Timothy is case in point. It was his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois who no doubt taught him the sacred writings from childhood, 2 Timothy 3.15. So women should instruct their children in the truths of God's word. Our passage does not prohibit that. Then over in Titus chapter 2, Paul specifically writes, Older women are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. So don't miss this. Titus 2 encourages women to teach God's word to other women. 1 Timothy 2.12 does not forbid that. You also have that pretty remarkable episode in Acts chapter 18. 
When after Apollos has preached God's word, a husband and wife team pull him off to the side and straighten him out. That is to say, a woman help correct a man in his preaching. One more example. In Colossians 3.16, Paul exhorts the church, not the men and not the elders, but the church, to do what? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. So in that way, the whole congregation is called upon, enlisted, to teach and admonish one another. And that would no doubt include the women. So how do we make sense of this first prohibition, this idea of a woman being forbidden to teach? That leads us to the second comment we have to make, and that has to do with the word that Paul uses there in verse 12 for teach. Throughout the pastoral epistles, that's First and Second Timothy and Titus, this word has a very specific meaning, one that carries with it the authoritative proclamation of the word of God. It's, it's the idea of, of teaching sound doctrine to the church. It, it, maybe we'd call it today sort of the fundamentals of the faith. Or to say just a little bit differently, this idea of teaching here in verse 12, it always has the sense of authoritative, public, doctrinal instruction. So the takeaway is this. While God's Word permits women to teach God's Word to children and to other women, it flatly prohibits women from preaching God's Word to men or declaring to men the doctrine of the church. So, just very practically, can a woman evangelize on the streets? Of course. Can she speak up in a community group and express her thoughts? No doubt. When the church gathers, can she read Scripture and lead the congregation in prayer? For sure. Can she teach a Sunday school class with the littles? Of course. But can she stand up on a Sunday morning, open God's Word, and preach the truth of God's Word to God's people? And the answer is, if we're going to be faithful to Scripture, no. And of course, this brings us to the second prohibition. Because verse 12 reads, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So congregation, what we have to see here is that the leadership in a local church, it is to be made up of men. Not just men, though, qualified men. We'll talk about that next week in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Sometimes people make the mistake and think, well, it's just men. No, it is qualified men. That's what God's Word declares. And just for the record, the New Testament most often refers to these qualified men as elders or pastors. They are the same group, the same men. Elders are pastors, pastors are elders. Each one of those words just sort of has a different little connotation to it. But in the New Testament, we're talking about the same group, the same office. And the point here in our passage is that that group, that office, it is prohibited for a woman. It's, it's prohibited for men. You have to be a qualified man. 
but you can never be a qualified woman. Does that make sense? A woman, verse 12, is not permitted to exercise authority over a man. She's not to rule or govern in the church. Instead, she is to submit to the elders. So zoom out. Let's just sort of summarize as we're kind of making our way through this passage, just to summarize these two prohibitions. You can put it really simply. She can't preach and she can't pastor. That's what Paul is prohibiting. Now, because of how patriarchal this all sounds, verse 12 has become something of a litmus test in recent years. Will churches maintain the conviction of the scriptures, or will they fold or capitulate to the winds of culture? That's really the question. As something of a microcosm for this, just a few years ago, I believe it was back in 2019, at Grace Community Church's Truth Matters Conference, there was a Q&A. Todd Friel was firing off questions. And part of this included what he referred to as a word association game. So he would say a word or a phrase, and then those on the panel were instructed to respond with the first word or phrase that entered their minds. Why you would do this and record it, I would never know. Friel's first word or phrase was Beth Moore the famous female Bible teacher who preaches God's Word from the pulpit to thousands of men. John MacArthur, who's too old to care now, without missing a beat, very quickly said, Go home. (laughs) To which a chorus of laughter, like here, and gasps erupted. I bring up that situation not to dunk on Beth Moore. She's in sin and needs to repent. But I raise it now because what MacArthur articulated in perhaps not the most sensitive way was really 1 Timothy 2.12. And he got a ton of blowback for that. I would hate to be MacArthur's secretary. But the point is, women are not to teach men, and neither are women to exercise authority over a man. And I think the reason there was so much pushback is because we are neck deep in an egalitarian society right now where to even read 1 Timothy 2.12 is equivalent to hate speech. But nevertheless, this is God's word. Let God be true and every man a liar. But is God just saying this to be mean? I mean, we might understand the prohibition. But what's the reason for it? What's the purpose? Why does verse 12 exist? And we really don't have a whole lot of doubt because verses 13 and 14 explain why Paul said what he did in verse 12. So women, according to Scripture, are not to teach or exercise authority over a man for two reasons. And both find their genesis in Genesis. In other words, 1 Timothy 2.12 springs from the soil of Genesis. Or, to run the risk of being overly polemical, the prohibition in verse 12 that makes some of us uncomfortable is not owing to some cultural thing that happened only in Ephesus. Some will say that. 
they will say, well, Paul's words here are temporary. They're only relevant for sort of this immediate context here in the Ephesian church. They don't really have anything to do with us today. Why? Well, women were uneducated or ignorant back then, so we are told. Or they will say, well, there was obviously something sort of unique that was happening in Ephesus. It was, it was plaguing that church, but, but it was sort of confined to that zip code. The point is, many want to limit Paul's words in verse 12 so that they have no application for us today. But what you have to see is that according to verses 13 and 14, The reasons for these words go beyond culture, and they go all the way back to creation. It goes back to God's good created order. So notice in verse 13, we are told the first reason for this prohibition is because verse 13, for, again, this is now fleshing out why verse 12 says what it does, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And again, I'm going to be redundant. Notice that the prohibition of verse 12 is not rooted in culture or even the fall of humanity. Paul goes all the way back to creation, back to paradise, back to Genesis 2, pre-fall, which means that these words in verse 12 are transcultural. They do not have an expiration date. They are binding on us today. And what Paul observes, what what he's highlighting, is that Adam's being created first in Genesis is what is sometimes referred to as primogeniture. That is to say, the law of the firstborn. And how the firstborn is entitled to particular privileges and responsibilities. And and even a cursory reading of the Old Testament, you will be aware of this, right? How often do we read in the Old Testament of the firstborn receiving a double portion? So here's the argument. Because Adam was formed first, it would be inappropriate for Eve, the woman, and second-born now, to rule over him. Similarly, then, in the church, the woman is not to teach or exercise authority over men. Why? Because man was formed first. And by that virtue, he has a unique measure of authority. And I should add, this is true not just in the context of the local church, but it's equally true in the context of the home. This is Paul's point. The second reason Paul gives for the prohibition of verse 12 is in verse 14. And it too comes right from Genesis. Verse 14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So again, you're going right back to, <clears throat> excuse me, you're going right, <coughs> wrong tube. You're going right back to Genesis. And the point that is being, being made here is that Eve was duped, not Adam. Now, this passage has sometimes been used to suggest that women are necessarily more gullible than men. 
And that's why they ought not to teach or exercise authority. And you should know that's a pretty ancient view throughout the history of the church. Now, I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's the best way to understand this passage, but it's one way. Nor do we want to suggest that because of verse 14, that somehow Adam bears no responsibility for the fall of humanity in Genesis 3. We know he most certainly does. If you know Genesis 3 well, you know that when God starts poking his finger in people's chests, he pokes it in Adam's chest, right? The hot lamp of interrogation goes on Adam's face, not Eve's. And then in other places, most notably Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes out of his way to lay the blame for the fall squarely at the feet, not of Eve, but of Adam. So with all of that being said, what is Paul driving at here? And I think that the emphasis needs to be on this idea of deception, Notice, no, notably Eve's deception. The point seems to be that Adam, like most men, sinned with his eyes wide open. Eve was duped, but Adam was determined, right? Eve fell into sin. Adam jumped into it. To which you say, okay, but well, what's the connection here in 1 Timothy 2.12? Well, listen to how Philip Jensen puts it. I, I think he's on the right track. He says, Eve's sin involved overturning the order of creation and teaching her husband. Similarly, Adam's sin came from listening to his wife in the sense of heeding and following her instruction. He was taught by her, thereby putting himself under her authority and reversing God's good ordering of creation. Or if I can put it in my own snarky words. It seems to be that Adam was the typical, apathetic, just go along with whatever the wife says, even though God's word says differently. And that ruined everything. You see, the fall of Adam and Eve, it is a cautionary tale. It is one that horrifically illustrates the evil that occurs when God's good order is reversed. Therefore, and I think this is what Paul is driving at, men in the church must avoid the abdication of Adam in the garden. They must not surrender their God-given leadership. And likewise, women in the church must avoid to seek ruling like Eve did in the garden. They must not step outside of the created order. Because when they do, women become, end of verse 14, like Eve. They become a transgressor. Now, nothing's been thrown at me yet, so I'm going to press on. With all of this being said, we've got to be very careful that we don't allow sort of pendulums to swing. You know what I mean? To go from one end to the other. Because even with all of this talk of created order and headship and leadership and men and women's respective roles, I want to go out of my way to let you know that none of this is intended to suggest that the gospel is applied to men and, men and women differently. 
Again, sometimes this is what women hear. They sort of hear, well, men are superior and women are inferior. Just sort of by default. Like like when it comes to salvation and justification or any of that, like men are somehow on the varsity squad and women are just automatically on the JV squad and this is just sort of owing simply to DNA. But, But I want to go out of my way again, Christian, man or woman, to just say that is not the case. Each of us, young, old, man, woman, we are all redeemed only one way, and that one way is the exact same way. And that one and exact same way is through Christ. This is what the Lord Jesus has done. He has come to rescue us, and he has rescued us by shedding his very blood for us. This is what he does, right? He he dies for us. He, he bears in his own body on that tree the very wrath of God that we deserve, man and woman, for our sin. And in this act, he conquers sin, and he conquers death, and he conquers hell. He triumphs over our greatest enemies by, by being resurrected from the dead. And when we trust into Christ, man, woman, young and old alike, When we come to him with the hands of faith, empty hands, bringing nothing, what we receive is all that Christ is for us in the gospel. We are saved by him and we are made safe and secure forever in him. Allow me, this is how Galatians 3 puts it. We read, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So so how are you and I brought into the family of God? Well, we are brought in by faith and by faith alone. Man, woman, what does our heart cry? But sola fide. And in the very next verse in Galatians, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That is to say, we are united to him. Christ becomes ours, we become his. And the relationship that the Christian has with Christ is so close and so intimate that we come to be robed in him, right? His righteousness, his glory, his perfection, all of that is now ours. All that Christ is, he is for us. And he is in us. And he is through us. To the point that, this is Galatians 3.28, now there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, so we are so united in Christ that as men and women and brothers and sisters, we become one. But contrary to our egalitarian friends. This does not mean that we all just sort of miraculously become like androgynous bags of water or something like that. But it does mean that in the gospel, our primary identity is no longer found in what our driver's license reveals. This is how we tend to think, right? Our weight, our height, our hair color. Our primary identity as Christians is found in Christ. But I'm still a man, and you're still a woman. 
regardless of our culture, where we think that we can choose and identify however we would. God is our creator. And even in the gospel, though we are saved all the same way, I remain a man, you remain a woman. Some of you. Some of you also remain men. And that means that in the context of the home and in the context of the church, these things are going to play themselves out a little bit differently. But in terms of salvation, when it comes to justification, brothers and sisters, when we are talking about heaven and glory and righteousness and inheritance and resurrection, man, woman, it doesn't matter. We all stand on equal footing before the cross of Christ. And it should be added that in Christ, we all stand right in God's sight. So with what I hope is the good news of the gospel ringing in your ears, let's press on now to the promise of our passage. Try to keep the the context, the flow going, because after the prohibition for women to not teach men or exercise authority over men in the church... And then, and then Paul says, I'm not done offending yet. Eve was, uh, Eve was uh, deceived and became a transgressor. Please hear this. And by implication, it was through woman that chaos came into the creation. This is sort of the backdrop. There is hope for the woman. Enter verse 15. Here's your hope, women. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. If they, that's women, if you, women, continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So there's your promise. There's your good news. There's your hope, ladies. I I think I've already made this probably clear enough, but this whole section of Scripture beginning in verse 11 is dicey. Like it starts in verse 11, and it just gets dicier and dicier, and in a lot of ways, verse 15 is sort of like the crescendo. And you get to the end of verse 15, and you just go, what on earth is Paul talking about? What's really the promise going on here? And so there are, as you can imagine, a couple of different views on how to treat verse 15. Let me share four of them with you very briefly. One is that women will go to heaven if they give birth. That's legit of you. That view takes verse 15's saved through childbearing and as saved in the sense of all of your sins will be forgiven and you will go to heaven. But but I think that we can immediately dismiss this view, right? Because this would immediately overthrow sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus. We know, this this is something that we're going to talk about in Sunday school in a couple of weeks, we know that we ought to interpret unclear passage of Scripture in light of clearer ones. And so we ought not to let an unclear passage like verse 15 run roughshod over all the Bible, which tells us that we are all saved, not by what we do, but like God has done for us, right? So the only way that we are saved is through Christ. And I assure you, whether you are a man or a woman, when it comes to judgment day, God is not going to look at your birth canal. That, that's not, that's not going to work. Another view takes saved through childbearing, not in the salvific sense, but more in the physical sense. In other words, this view says that what the passage is teaching is that women will always survive childbirth. But again, 
that doesn't seem to work. And it doesn't seem to work because not only is that really like disjointed from the actual context of 1 Timothy, but unfortunately we know it's just not true. Unfortunately, there are many godly women who have in fact perished giving birth. Most notably perhaps would be Rachel, Jacob's wife from Genesis. So those two views in my mind are are just untenable. There are two others. And again, I want to be very clear. I'm not 100% here. Both have their difficulties. Both have other scriptures that, that would sort of bolster them. So the point is, I'm not too dogmatic here, okay? The first interprets the she of verse 15, not as women, but as Eve. And the saved as salvation from sin. And then that phrase childbearing as referring not to the birth of a child, but to the birth of the child, Christ. In other words, it is argued that verse 15, and this is, again, a very ancient view in the church, is that verse 15 is talking about the birth of Christ. So through the virgin birth, right, through a woman, Christ came into the world. And through his life and death and resurrection, he he would save his people, all those who would repent of their sins and trust in him. He he, he would save them. And in the context, particularly women, women have a hope. This would be the promise that there's a Savior. This idea is perhaps best captured by Walter Locke's little couplet from the beginning of the 20th century. A child from woman's seed to spring shall saving to all women bring. So the point is, for all the chaos that woman brought into the garden, it is through woman, through, uh, uh, through Mary, that God sends a redeemer. And so here what I would, here's, here's how I would, what I would say to that view. I think that's true. I just don't know if that's what Paul's talking about here. I think it's absolutely true. I I just wouldn't stake my life on making that case from verse 15. The other view, and this is sort of the way I lean depending upon the weather, it interprets saved in verse 15, not as saved from sin, but, but, but more in the sense of preservation. And then it understands childbearing as something of a shorthand expression for women being devoted uh, to their home, to, to the domestic sphere. So in this view, the sense of verse 15 is something like this. Women are saved not by grasping after a role that God has not ordained for them, teaching or exercising authority in the church. That's the context, right? But they are saved, preserved, they will flourish in accepting their divinely appointed duty of womanhood. And I tend to think, again, that for all the problems, this view has the least of them. It seems to make the most sense in the context. So to summarize, what's being emphasized here is not so much uh, that a woman's calling is to teach or to rule men in the church. That's not her, her job, if I can put it that way. But a woman's calling is to be faithful in supporting her husband and in rearing the children that God has given her to fear and love God. And, and she's called to manage her household, and she is to instruct other women to do the same thing. 
And if you were to raise your hand and ask the question, well, 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 why is that? Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. Childbearing is one of the unique ways in which a woman can accept in obedience her God-given design. In other words, if you look at 11 through 15 and zoom out, you go, well, men were made for this, women were made for that. And I think, again, that's what Paul is getting at. Now, don't misunderstand me. Please, I know that not all women get married, and, and not all women who get married have children. That's not the point. At least that's not the point that Paul is making here. The point I think that Paul is making is that childbearing is the most notable and glorious example of the divinely intended difference in roles between men and women. I can't do what women do. Literally. I don't care what our governor says. You're not birthing people. You're a woman. You're a mom. There's no chest feeding. It's breastfeeding. God made women in a particular way for a particular task. And rather than, as the feminists have done, denigrate that, it should be celebrated. And men and husbands and fathers and brothers and grandpas and uncles, you ought to celebrate that as well. That is God's design. And again, I think while there's exceptions, I get that. I think that's the overall tenor of what is being expressed here. So, I know we're going long. Script, what Scripture wants us to see is that there are differences. You don't have to be a biologist to know the difference between a man and a woman. And those differences, the point is they are fundamental. They are inherent in us. They go down to our bones. Those differences are in our DNA. And not only are they down into us, but those differences go all the way back to creation itself. And so what God wants us to see here, what Christ wants for his church, is that in the church, the way that it is ordered and structured and governed and ruled... Christ wants all of that done in such a way so that the order of creation is reflected in the church. If you have questions, email Pastor Justin. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father in heaven, there, there's no joking about it to say that we come as weak and finite and sinful creatures. And we know that you in your grace have condescended to us and what you have revealed in your word is utterly perfect and true and right. But so often we walk around with blinders on. The deficiency here, Lord, in our understanding, in our application, in our celebrating your word, the deficiency is not in you or your word, it's in us. And we acknowledge that and we confess that. And we pray that as we seek to be obedient to your word and lean into the truth of your word, that you would only give us further illumination, that you would only further enlighten the very eyes of our hearts, that we would walk before you as individuals and in the context of this church. And as we go back into our families for this week, that we would walk in ways that are altogether pleasing to you. And that we would do so knowing that we do not walk alone, you have not left us as orphans, but you have sent us your spirit. So may your spirit work this grace in our hearts. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.